Let's open our Bibles together to the little letter of 3rd John. 3rd John comes right after 1st John and 2nd John. And um, it's not too far away from the book of Revelation. So if you're new to the Bible, just go to the very back, to the last book, and then turn uh, a little bit forward and you will find the book of 3rd John. Third John, follow with me as I read. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these and that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Few things affect the health of a church more than the contrasting characteristics of pride and humility. Pride produces selfish ambition and power struggles which destroy unity, whereas humility, the humility of Christ, produces ongoing growth in love and forms a bond that is strong and unified. Here in Third John, the apostle is commending one man whom we'll look at this morning. He is then correcting a second man who we'll look at next week, and then also commending a man by the name of Demetrius at the end of the book, who appears to be the one who was the mailman who delivered this letter to John, or excuse me, to, to Gaius from John. 
The Apostle Paul also addresses this issue of pride and humility and the consequences of both of them, the harm caused by pride and the health that is caused by humility uh, when he was addressing the church at Corinth. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because this helps us to understand the differing mindsets of Gaius and Diotrephes. Gaius is commended for his humility and his love and Diotrephes is corrected for his pride and selfish ambition and arrogance and love of himself. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing the most corrective letter he has ever had to write when he writes this letter to the Corinthian church. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In other words, I couldn't address you as spiritually mature people who are walking in the Spirit, but no immature people who are still infants in Christ, who are still living according to the flesh. I fed you with milk, verse 2, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, how, how is this fleshliness working itself out here in the church at Corinth? Well, he tells us in verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He goes on then to talk about the grace of God being that which empowered him and anyone else to be a fellow worker of God. Earlier in the book, he, he corrects this same issue where there is this party spirit in the church where they're all picking their favorite preacher and they're, they're kind of at odds with each other. And, and so one guy says, you know, well, I, I'm a follower of Paul. I mean, he's the ultimate. No, 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 no. Apollos is way better in the pulpit than Paul. I'm a follower of Apollos. Oh, I've got all of you beat. I follow Jesus. You know, and you see that even in today's church. You see a lot of fractures that revolve around celebrities. And yet, what does Paul say we are? Verse 5. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants. Paul says, All I am is a servant through whom you believed. I'm a servant of God, and, and you, you believed in the gospel because God was at work through me. It's not because of me, it's because of the Spirit of God working through His Word. Paul says, We had different roles, different responsibilities, different. Um, Times according to God's timetable. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
And so the servant mindset is that of verse seven. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God. I'm not anything, you're not anything. God's everything. If God is working in our hearts and causing growth by the Spirit of God through his word and that is spreading through this church, it's God doing that work. And he's the one who gets the glory. But what an amazing privilege it is then, verse 9, to understand that we are God's fellow workers. We're fellow workers with God. God is the one who does his work. As Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is in charge of building his church and we are greatly privileged and honored to be fellow workers with him in his church doing his work through the word. Now, with that understanding there, look back at 3 John, because here you see a contrast between this man Gaius, who was quite content to see himself as a servant, a servant of God, part of God's team of fellow workers, in contrast to the guy mentioned later, Diotrephes is his name, Diotrephes saw himself not as a servant, but as a Lord, as the first church boss, the top dog, the head honcho, the big kahuna. That was Diotrephes. He wanted to be first. He wanted to be remembered, and he got what he wanted. He's now forever remembered in Scripture as being the first church boss the first guy who tried to lord it over everybody else. He wanted to be first. That's what John says. He wasn't willing to be last. He didn't have the heart of a servant, as Jesus says. The last shall be what? First. And the first shall be last. So if you clamor to be first among everyone else, you'll end up being last. But if you have the heart of a servant and follow Christ and serve God with that heart of a servant, someday God will honor you as only he can and as only he sees fit. So what prompted John to write this little note is that Gaius was graciously providing hospitality to the itinerant teachers of the word that we talked about in 2 John, these traveling preachers. They were teachers of the word of God, and and Gaius was showing hospitality to them. He was providing food and lodging and financial support for them so that they could continue in their work for Christ. But Diotrephes, John says, refused that same hospitality, and in fact, he forbid others from showing hospitality to these traveling preachers. Actually, forbid them from carrying out the command of Christian love. It's quite serious. And so in these first verses, the 
first eight verses, which we'll look at this morning. Notice how John commends Gaius for the balance of truth and love in his life and in his testimony. Truth and love go together. We've seen that now in Second John, also in First, and here it is again in the third letter. The word truth occurs six times in this tiny note. Notice the combination, though, of truth and love. Verse 1, whom I love in truth, John says. I love this, this brother named Gaius in truth. He is the beloved Gaius. He's loved by all. I love him in truth. Verse 3, other believers testified of his truth. They came and testified to your truth and indeed how you are walking in the truth. And John says, that brings me great joy because I have no greater joy than to know that my spiritual children are walking in truth. Verse six, traveling missionaries testified of this man's love. So here's a man who had love and truth together. And this combination of truth and love resulted in Gaius becoming an example of how we should love other believers, and especially traveling ministers of the gospel, those whom we most often today call missionaries. That brings us to the big idea this morning, and that is this. God's word commends us for showing hospitality and financially supporting faithful ministers of the gospel. Gaius is lifted up as an example for us to follow. And so as he is commended by the apostle, so we can accurately apply the same to us, that as we show this kind of balance of Christian love and truth, so too God will commend us. So these first eight verses illustrate the the Christian love that John wrote so much about in his first two letters There's three applications this morning from this passage. Three applications we may draw from the first eight verses. Number one, pray for the health and spiritual well-being of fellow Christians. Notice verses one and two. The elder to the beloved Gaius. He's well-loved by all. He's described as being beloved. Loved by God, of course, in Christ, but also loved by other believers, loved by other Christians, loved by missionaries who are being served by him in truth and love. But notice how John prays for this man's physical health. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. This is a biblical way to pray. But also notice the the connection that the apostle makes between physical health and spiritual health. He says, I pray that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So the apostle prayed for this man's physical health that it would be as good as his spiritual health, which apparently was very good. Because here was a man who had a living testimony of being filled with both love and truth, both truth and love. And so here's a man who had a close walk with his Savior. Here's a man who loved the Word of God. He is living according to the Holy Spirit and not according to the flesh. And as a result, his spiritual health was good. 
John says, I pray your physical health would be as good as your spiritual health. Isn't that a great way to pray? And this, of course, is another example from Scripture that a person's declining of physical health is not always related to their spiritual health. In other words, there are some in this world and some in professing Christianity who teach that if you are sick, it is because you have sinned. And you need to figure out how you have sinned. Well, we know generically speaking, all sickness is the result of sin because sin entered the world in Genesis 3 and suffering came after that. But to think that your suffering and my suffering physically is always connected to our personal sin is an unbiblical teaching. Don't fall prey to that. Of course, be sensitive to what the Lord may want to teach you in times of physical illness and say, Lord, search my heart, show me. I want to be closer to you. Use this suffering to draw my soul closer to you that my spiritual health would be actually better than my physical health. Wouldn't that be a great way to pray? That we would pray that the health of our souls would be greater than our physical health. Because we get pretty preoccupied with our physical health, don't we? I mean, we live in these bodies and we will until we die. And so we're preoccupied with the things that are physical. We're preoccupied with the aches and the pains and, and all of that. And yet God wants us to be preoccupied with the condition of our soul. The word soul here is the Greek word psyche. refers to the immaterial part of Man, So this is the soul that God created when God created us both body and soul. Basic principle then for us to remember is that the one who created both body and soul is the one who knows what we need in both body and soul. And we live in a world that is so over-psychologized and and, and everything has some kind of a psychological or psychiatric root to it. And so the world is running in every direction trying to find the answers for their psyche, their soul, failing, if they're unbelievers, failing to understand that their soul's deepest need is first to be reconciled to God. And as God reconciles us to himself through Christ, he begins this work in our souls. He remakes us into the image of Christ, which then comes out in the way that we live. And so when our psyche, when our soul is in need, who can speak, to the be- who can speak best to that? It is God. God speaks best to that. And so we look to his word and we look to sound biblical counsel to feed our soul and direct us and and guide our thoughts according to God's word because God is interested not only in us praying for our physical healing, but he's interested in us praying for our soul healing, the healing of our inner being, our immaterial part, which is so mysterious, isn't it? It's very mysterious, something only God understands. And so that's why God's healing words of truth in his words speak so beautifully to our troubled souls. 
We are embodied souls. The one affects the other. The body affects the spirit. The spirit affects the body. That's why when you have the flu, you probably feel really crummy, not just physically, but you feel crummy spiritually too. Your inner being isn't quite where you want it to be and vice versa. The whole point here I want you to see is that God cares about both. God cares about both our physical health and the health of our soul, the health of our inner being, that part that we can't see, that part that communes with God, that part that can receive comforting, healing words of truth from his word that meet us where we're at and bring comfort and peace to our troubled souls. Pray for the health and spiritual well-being of fellow Christians. Asaph prayed for this in Psalm 73. Over the years, has become one of my favorite psalms. But in a time of great affliction, this is how he prayed. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh, my physical being may fail. My soul, my inner invisible part, my immaterial being may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here's a man who prayed for that kind of holistic healing so to speak, if you want to use that language. He prayed for God's strength for his body, but he also prayed that God's strength would make his heart strong and be his portion forever. And that's what we need, right? When we're going through any and every affliction, we need God ministering to us at both levels, sustaining this body that he created for us and also filling our spirit with hope and Christ-centered focus, the kind of strength that only he can supply. And you've probably seen this over the years if you've known any mature believers who go through incredible physical suffering and you see in spite of their incredible physical suffering and great physical weakness, there is a strength of spirit in them that you cannot explain, that cannot be attributed to anything except the work of God in their life. And and that's what we should be praying for, for ourselves and for one another. There's a second application I want you to see here in verses three and four. Rejoice with other Christians who walk in the truth. So John received this letter, probably delivered by Demetrius, and he heard of Gaius loving the truth and loving others in the truth, and this brought John great joy. And you understand this if you are a spiritual mother or father or mentor to others. You understand that the joy that you Experience when you see your spiritual children walking according to God's word is an indescribable joy. And the opposite is often the case as well. 
when you see them going astray and not following God's word, it, it pierces your heart with a pain that is difficult to describe. So John here is rejoicing that, that, these, uh, that this brother in particular is walking in the truth and some of his children, those who, whom he is influencing, and John's children are walking in the truth. When you hear or see other believers taking steps of obedience to God's word, it brings great joy to your heart. It's like that first-time parent, you know, seeing their toddler walk for the first time. It's like jumping up and down and screaming and hooray, you know. There's great joy. And we do the same thing in our hearts when we see other believers take those steps of obedience. That's one of the reasons why uh, baptism services around here are one of the most favorite kinds of services because as we get to witness people obeying Christ in the baptistry back there and confessing Christ and following his command to be baptized as a believer in Christ, it brings so much joy to this congregation. Joy just spreads. Those are my favorite services. It's amazing what God does in our spirits when we see other people walking in obedience to Christ. This brought the Apostle Paul great joy as well. We see this in the first chapter of First Thessalonians. Um, you can turn there or you can just listen as I read. Listen to the joy that is kind of in the white space between the lines, as, as Paul writes. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The reception of the gospel by these people resulted in then lives that were being changed by the Holy Spirit, learning to walk in truth, and that produced great joy. And that joy didn't just stay in Thessalonica, but it spread out from there. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think one of the greatest testimonies that our church could have as other people learn of us and hear of Cornerstone, this is a church of joy. There is joy here. And that joy comes from walking in both love and truth. And praise God for what he's doing among us. So when you see other Christians walking in obedience, do you rejoice with them? You should. This should be a source of great joy.
Last week I mentioned Hebrews 13, 17, which mentions the joy that church elders feel when, when church members walk in obedience to God. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's what I kind of emphasized last week, the responsibility that we as church shepherds feel to keep watch over your soul as those who are going to give an account to God someday. But the very next part of the verse says this, let them do this, so let the church shepherds do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. One of the ways we receive great joy as church shepherds is to not only teach you the word of God and pray for you and pray with you, but also to see you growing in Christ and taking those steps of obedience. It brings great joy. And notice the interesting way the writer ends that verse that this will be of no advantage to you. In other words, if, if your shepherds are not joyful because of your obedience, in other words, they're groaning because of disobedience, that groaning, that sadness among the elders is of no advantage to you. So it benefits the church body in massive ways when we are all growing in obedience to God because it's producing joy. And that joy becomes contagious and it's good for you. It's good for your soul. And it's good for my soul. There's a third application that I want you to see here. Support fellow workers who remain faithful to the truth. Verses five through eight. Notice the faithful thing that Gaius was doing. It is a faithful thing you do, John says, in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Gaius was loving on these traveling missionaries, meeting their needs, caring for them. And they were strangers. They weren't people he knew before, which interestingly is actually the definition of the word hospitable. It means lover of stranger. Did you know that? Hospitable means lover of stranger. And we see this hospitality lifted up in the New Testament as something that is really important and really worthy of our attention. Uh, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says that hospitality ought to be modeled by godly widows. And, and um, Paul says, if this is the kind of widow you have in your church, she ought to be placed on the list. That is, she ought to be cared for by the church, if she doesn't, especially if she doesn't have uh, family members, living family members to care for her. Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality has washed to the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. It's difficult to be a widow and a widower. I haven't had to go through that yet myself, but I do know enough people to know it's a real challenge. And yet what a blessing this scripture is to say that, that you take that new season of your life and you employ it in the service of God in showing hospitality and serving other believers and serving Christ in his church and this is a great blessing to you and it's a great blessing to the church 
Romans 12 says hospitality is expected from every believer. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Or 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In fact, Scripture even says that one of the qualifications for me as an elder, as a pastor, is that I practice hospitality. And uh, I'm so thankful for uh, a wife who enjoys doing that with me um, and really is a massive support to my ministry in that way. But you don't have to be married to practice hospitality. You don't even need to own a home to practice hospitality. You can have a spirit of hospitality whereby you love strangers. You meet their needs. You care for them. If you have a home, then open your home and use it for ministry sake. Let me ask you a really personal question this morning. Do you have a spirit of hospitality? Do you love strangers? Or do you save your love for family and only close friends? Who do you have into your home? Only your family? Only your closest friends? That's one of the way cliques can form in churches, which end up being harmful. That's why I think hospitality, practicing loving strangers, is a good remedy against cliquishness in churches. Always be looking for someone new that you can welcome into your fold, bring into your home for a meal. A pastor I was planning a church with in Kansas used to challenge us this way. How do you view your home? Is your house a place of hospitality? Is it a ministry hub that helps you show the love of Christ or is it a museum whereby you show off your material possessions? Two ways to look at your home. Is it a ministry hub or is it a museum? You know, I mean, I know we all have, you know, projects going on in our houses. We have things we want to look nicer and look, you know, and be in better shape and updated from the 70s, you know, and, and, and all that. But if you wait until all that's done, you'll probably be on your deathbed. So don't wait until all that's done. The staff have told me that one of my, their favorite quotes from me in the last few years is, people don't give a rip about your house. <laughs> they really don't. They don't give a rip about your house. What they do give a rip about is experiencing the love of Christ. And what a great privilege and joy that is. Is your house a ministry hub or is it a museum? This man's love for strangers was so habitual that it became part of his testimony that these missionaries, verse 6, testified of your love. And, and they've gone out for the sake of the name, verse 7, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, they're not doing fundraising efforts to non-believers. They're trusting God and God's people to provide the needs of the ministry. And Gaius was a part of that. Therefore, here's the application, verse 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. There's that fellow workers again. 
Isn't that great? Paul uses it a lot in Philippians. You might want to spend time reading Philippians 4 this week um, because you'll see how, how Paul commends the believers there for their gracious giving and the way that they were involved in the ministry through their giving. They were fellow workers with the other servants of God. They were participating in the work of the gospel. They were meeting needs. And as a result of that, then we have that beautiful promise that we all love in Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That verse comes on the heels of a commendation for how gracious these believers were, how generous they were. And as a result, the whole church Paul says, praises God. Isn't that wonderful? We are fellow workers with God. What a great privilege that is. Servants, that's our role. That's our calling. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us in Christ far more than we can imagine. Thank you for blessing us in so many ways, Lord. We have the riches of your provision in in ways that that we sometimes take advantage of, that we take for granted, we don't even think to thank you for. And Lord, forgive us for that. Produce within us a heart that is overflowing with thanksgiving and a heart that is then overflowing with love for strangers. Lord, help us to grow in this area of hospitality. Help us to continue to be a church that supports missionaries. We're thankful for our missions team and how they faithfully screen the people who come and want financial support from our church and how they test their doctrine and test their lives and ensure that uh, when parts of the church budget are used for that funding, that it's according to your word. It's in love and truth. Bless them and give them discernment even in the days and years ahead as they continue to serve our church in that way. Father, give us this kind of a generous spirit Lord, even as we've thought about how we need you both physically and spiritually, our body and our soul, help us to be more sensitive to that, to pray for one another in that way and to pray for ourselves as well, that you would cause us to be whole and healthy in both body and in our soul. In Christ's name we pray, amen.